Miranda Hestry. And I'm Nivia Trujillo. Welcome to our four-part podcast, Shifting Paradigms, a conversation about power and our relationship with work. In episode one, we explore fundamental questions such as what is work, how we measure it, and where and when work happens. In episode two, we argue that because the nature of work has changed and we are in a period of assimilation, we need to also assess the current power dynamics between employees and employers. In episode three, we share a few tools that help us ask broad questions and really center goals, not tactics, so that we can address the existential crisis around us. And in episode four, we wrap up our podcast with a deep dive into how we can humanize our workspaces and the role of technology in those efforts. Before we get started, we'd like to offer a disclaimer. In our podcast, we speak from our personal experiences and mostly address the state of being for quote unquote white collar workers and white collar jobs, those that happen behind a desk and behind computers in the United States. We want to acknowledge that this is only a small portion of the workforce and work experiences out there. Welcome back, everyone. So this is episode four. We have reached the end. The, uh, the last episode. And today, in this episode, we're going to talk about, we're going to continue the conversation about humanizing our workspaces. And the reason we're continuing that conversation is because we want to talk about technology and the role of technology as a really kind of juicy, interesting, and ever-present case study in our lives. Then we're going to talk about systems-level analysis and systems-level change and all the amazing things that that makes possible. And we're going to wrap up with just some big-picture takeaways and where do we go from here. Before we get started with our material for episode four, we just want to give you a recap of what we talked about in episode three, specifically acknowledging that, you know, humans are complex beings that show up in multi multifaceted ways, which means that our lives, both within the office and outside the office, they're connected. It's, it's a fluid experience uh, rather than one that is compartmentalized into different sections of our lives. Human capital, what do we mean by human capital? Human capital is not just a person, a human showing up to do work for organization. I think it's important for us to acknowledge what we bring as human capital, and that's knowledge, experience, skills, attributes, social networks, um, and social capital. We know that human-centered design principles um, help us center the human when we're trying to ask big questions. And um, as we're centering humans, um, and we're talking about some of the issues uh, that are pertinent to this discussion, for example, when we're talking about benefits um, or compensation um, or internal communication, we have to center the human as we're coming up with solutions for that. And unfortunately, that does not include centering either profitability or employer goals. It really, truly has to be just centered on the human. Um, so, you know, as Farah said, the role of tech is one that is huge in all of our lives. And today we want to touch upon how technology affects uh, humans in the workplace. Yeah. And so we're going to go back also to something we talked about in episode three, which was these frameworks that help us center goals. So whether that's targeted universalism, universal design for learning, or other design principles that ask us what is the goal of technology? What are our goals and how do we achieve those goals? And so with that ethos, I want to start today with the conversation and just like highlighting, Nidia, when we think about technology, 
what was the initial goal or like what is an ideal goal for the role of technology in our lives? Well, it's supposed to make it easier, right? More efficient. Um, it's so funny that you say that because I, when I think of technology, it takes me back to my first year of college. I had never used or seen a computer before then. This was 95, you know, no judgment. I know that Apple existed before then. But it was so novel to me to show up on campus and to know that I could go to a computer center to type my papers instead of handwriting them. And to me, that was just so exciting. Um, and, and it was honestly another pull and draw towards, you know, just being on campus. It was such a cool thing to experience. Yeah. And that I think it like captures what this what our goal for technology should be. It's that it makes life easier when we think about, you know, dishwashers and washing machines. And it brings a level of joy and curiosity, right? So this, that joy that we first held, like a computer lab or or being able to type a paper instead of handwriting it, it, it fills us with spaciousness. It does. Yeah. But what's the reality of how technology is actually showing up in our lives today? Um, even when we think about our own kind of stories and so you had this like amazing experience first experiencing a computer how do you experience a computer now in your life it feels like an additional limb whether it's my phone or my computer um, it's the first thing I look at when I wake up in the morning and I am not ha- proud to admit that but I, it's it's obvious that it has a monumental role in my life yeah. um, and probably more so than it should have. I will often joke that sometimes I get so tired of my computer at the end of the day, I will actually like stuff it under a seat cushion on my couch just to try to make it go away. Yeah. Um, I have a similar experience with kind of phones. I remember the first time oh I traveled with a phone. That's right. Oh, that was such, traveling with a phone, I remember that was so huge. And it brought this sense of, safety and comfort and it's like I wasn't completely untethered from the world if I needed help if I needed to hear you know my mom's voice I could yeah and now though I will admit the thing I'm most sad about is that now you can it's so easy to get wi-fi on planes because for such a long time that was the last like corner of my life where I could be like you can't reach me I'm like I have to just put the phone away that's right and it really, it does. It feels like a limb. It feels like a leash. Yes. Right. And I think that, again, as we think about the role of technology um, in society, in our workplace, it is us grappling with what it was supposed to be, what the goal was supposed to be, and where we've ended up in a much more transactional place. And so it really has gone from this like cool toy to leash to like this thing that just drags us down. Um, Well, it's both, you know, it's, I feel like people have very strong uh, emotions uh, in both directions. I think people still have that excitement, right? That it's shiny new toy uh, mentality. But I also think people are starting to, or at least I am, and I'll speak for myself, feel a little bit resentful about how much it dominates my life. Um, You know, it has changed how we live, how we work, how we play, even how we interact with each other. Let's take it back to, you know, the the conversation about your phone. Um, Even nowadays, you know, people don't answer the phone. They (laughs) wait for people to leave a message or they say, uh, 
you know, they text. So it really has changed the, the way we interact with each other um, and how we see each other. I have to, I love that you brought that up because I, when my phone rings, like someone calls me on my phone, there's this like moment of panic and almost like, what do I do? What do I do? What do someone I do? is calling me. Oh my God. On my phone, <laughs> which should be about people calling me. Well, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it just, it has more of how we do a lot of the things in our lives um, uh, for sure. And it's interesting also because that makes me think of, you know, now I, I see my phone as a, a a vehicle more for text messages and Slack messages. And you had brought up something really interesting mm. around feedback you got about your politeness. Oh and my gosh. Like asking how people are on t my text message. It was one of those days where I started feeling my age, you know, where I'm like, oh my gosh, I am out of the loop. <laughs> um, so it's so interesting. Uh, I had a friend that I was texting with. Um, she's younger, you know, she's a millennial. And, um, she just plain out asked me, you know, why I was capitalizing letters and using periods in my texts. And I said, well, because that's just how I write. And they're like, well, but this isn't writing. This is a conversation. And also, why are you using red hearts? You know, you know that red hearts means love, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know it means love. And then she said, well, there's all these other colors that you can use to correspond to how you feel about someone. And that just really just gobsmacked me you know, that that we're giving so much importance to these really odd things. And yet it's actually distancing ourselves from each other. It's making us, uh, you know, a little bit desensitized. So her comments were interesting. And I think my reaction was, well, that's just how I do it. Yeah. And in talking to you, I realized that it's cultural. You know, we are women of color and we have both learned in our respective households that you greet people, um, you, you know, write appropriately. Even now when I write emails, I'll say, dear so-and-so, how are you? I hope all is well. Yeah. And I have also been asked, why do you do that? Why don't you just go straight to the point? And I can't help it. That's just how I am. And that is the intersectional analysis again of some of this, right? Is that it's impacting women of color, some of these norms, this like desensitizing, the flattening, the like rapid response, the like, let's just use abbreviations and emojis. For those of us who come from cultures where we're communal and we spend a lot of time in that checking in with each other to set the community, to set the relationship. Uh, technology is flattening and taking some of that away. Yeah. But even more broadly, we've seen technology uh, when it, when instead of using technology as a tool to facilitate conversation, we're letting technology define what communication should look like. 100%. Right. So instead of it's some, something that's making our communications easier and making us feel more connected, now there's all of these other rules dictated by the technology that's on how right. to talk. And it's changed the norms in terms of how we, we actually relate to each other, yeah. right? You bring up Slack and uh, text and, you know, those are technologies that are super important and that are, you know, deal breakers in, in terms of virtual work. And, I, and by deal breakers, I mean that they are important tools um, in this transformation. But what I would say to that is that we just have to be careful to not overuse them, yeah. right? Because there is a place for them uh, and there is a convenience for them, but they should not be a substitute for actual human interaction when it so requires.
Yeah. And so when we're talking about humanizing our workspaces, this is also about talking about using tool or using technology as the tool that we kind of envision and hope and want it to be that goal. And I think, again, coming back now to like really talking about our workspaces, I think the really one of the really interesting things is to, to really analyze and think about the role of technology in our workspaces and the automation and the potential both good and the bad that technology has, right? And so again, there's it's a tool. How we use it is up to us. That's right. And and that's the rub. And I think that's where we sort of have to really rethink about how to use this powerful tool. Yeah. So you had brought up some really, really fascinating quotes by different technologists who are thinking about the role of technology. And I wanted to ask you to share some of those. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this whole technology and, and humans for a really long time. And I think it was born out of really leaving the workforce uh, during COVID and feeling just really disconnected from human interaction. And it became evident there that it was obviously because I wasn't going into the office and I wasn't interacting on a daily basis with people. So I, I've been, you know, just thinking about this issue for a really long time. And as part of my research, I came up with, you know, some of the commentary that scholars and philosophers are actually making about this issue. And I wanted to share with you a couple of quotes, which I found were really powerful. Uh, Mika Almond, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and head scientist in the program on information science uh, at MIT libraries, has written, late historian Melvin Kratzberg insightfully observed, Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. I love that one because, again, I think in our in our world where we're systematized to think about binaries yes. and maybe a third option, I heard that initially when I first read it. I was like, great, yeah, but you're right. Technology is neither good or bad. It's neutral. And then to have someone be like, it's not neutral either. I'm like, nope. whoa. Um, so what are some of the other ways in which it's not neutral? Like what are some of the other philosophers and yeah, um, professors talking about so that. Angelique Hedberg, um, who is uh, out of um, RTI International, has said in 50 years, multiple generations of a family will gather for dinner and share insights, smells, sounds, tastes, and even touches, even if they're in different hemispheres, countries, or time zones. Oof, that's really powerful. That's right? such a pop, like such, such a lovely potential positive use and future of technology. Yes, that's exactly right. And and quite frankly, I think this is one of the ways in which we can use it responsibly to enhance our human experience. Yeah. And to, to connect us, to that's, bring us together. That's right. To make our humanness more. That's right. Yeah. It's not just about bringing us together and connecting us physically. It's about connecting each other at a deeper level. Yeah. Diego, uh, Daniel Rivera, um, has said, society will have fully changed to adapt to a new reality. Humans will need to realize the importance of sustainability and equality. In order to reach this point, technology, ethics, philosophy, laws, and economics, among other fields, will have done a big joint effort. We have a very good opportunity. He's yeah. right. Yeah. And I think that this, to me, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, really highlights that in order for us to get this right, we have to think Big, we have to think systems, systems level, we have to right. think paradigm shift, because again, we're at this cusp, we're at an inflection point. That's right. Um, what if we get it wrong? Oof. 
Well, if we get it wrong, here's a really interesting uh, perspective. William Oricchio, it says, changes in digital life are human driven. Technology will only amplify the social structures that it created. My pessimism ensues from the polarization of power, knowledge and wealth that characterizes much of the world at the start of the 21st century. Digital technologies have the capacity to be terrific enablers, but the question remains, enablers of what? Of whose vision? Of what values? This seems to me are the defining questions. Yeah, and this you know, ties in really great with our previous conversation about power yeah. and how so much of this inflection point and this paradigm shift that we're at the cusp of is about balancing power and asking the question, who has power? Who is this helping? You know, what's our vision? Yeah. What's our collective vision? 100%. So on that, we've been talking about two current, like already in the field uses of technology that kind of make us go, Maybe that's not the best way to use power. This is exactly what we mean by don't take technology in this direction. So another article that I was re reading by an associate professor um, from the University of Virginia who actually studies technology and its role on humanity. Um, you know, I was reading some of her work and I was sure <laughs> that she was going to agree with me that humanity could potentially be bad for humanity if we don't use it responsibly. And then she offered up an example of how technology is actually being used in the workplace. Um, and what she brought up was an example of an application. Uh, it's essentially a behavior track, tracking application that employers can use uh, to track. It has sensors, microphones, and motion detectors through which they can measure the amount and quality of face-to-face -face interaction and even your tone of voice. And here's the grab. It actually gives you feedback about your social interactions. Now, here's what blew my mind. I was like, yes, that is exactly why technology should not be used in that way. But she actually thought it was a good thing. And I just don't get it. And that, like, when you first read that description to me, I think I, like, A, my entire body flinched. And I, I think <laughs> I went, oh, my God. Like, I visceral, visceral reaction, yeah. right? And I think that... We think about, again, as women of color, That's right. the amount of tone policing that already happens in our life. Yes. And this idea that our employer would come into our home and like mic up the place and add cameras so they could do more tone yeah. policing. And this notion that like, again, that technology is going to uh, enforce power in this way so that there is, again, one right way to do things. That's right. And we know that's not going to be the way that you and I do things. Right. Um, it's the people who already have power and then us constantly being forced to adapt to that. 100%. And yeah. there are so many basic questions around like trust and respect. Yeah. My goodness, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly not how you build relationships with humans. I know I also, one of the other things that's out there right now are a lot of these like productivity apps, especially mm -hmm. since we're working from home yes. and because employers don't trust us and That's have right. so much power. And I did one assignment a couple of years ago now, actually. So this just tells you how long it, this has been out there, yeah. um, where I had to be on a platform and every 10 minutes at a random point, it would take a screenshot of my computer. If I wasn't working, they wouldn't pay me for that 10 minute time. Oh my God. And but not only that, it's if I didn't make enough progress in whatever I was supposed to be doing, they wouldn't pay me. So I remember I was writing and writing for me is I have to gather my thoughts. It's a fluid effort. Yeah. yeah. 
And so I like was thinking, and I think I might've like gone to the bathroom or something and I came back and there was a, a pop-up s- screen that said, we have detected not enough activity and therefore what? you won't be paid for these 10 minutes. And then I remember at one point, and this is like an interesting interplay of how different technology is like also making our lives really complicated. So I got a Facebook notification and my Pavlovian response, like <laughs> notification must check. Yeah. So I switched, I like popped open Facebook and that's the second it took a screenshot. And then I remember having to like oh email God. the help desk to be like, can you please delete the screenshot? It's a personal, like it was a personal message on Facebook. On your personal computer. My personal computer. And the response was, well, you were doing it on client time. And I was like, but there was a notification and Facebook has trained me to like click on the right. notification. Oh my god! But gosh. now you're like, and now this, this personal message was being sent to my client and they were using it to not pay me for a good chunk of time. And also now they had access to this personal message. And yeah, it's again, it's one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe that. That is outrageous. Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, you're a consultant, right? And well, and the, I think that it is the interesting part of we think about the power that employers have, as we talked about in a previous episode, and this notion that consulting is supposed to somehow free you from that power. But again, employers are are working to keep that power. That's right. And technology can be a tool that is joyous and frees us and inspires us, or it can be a tool to maintain the power systems and to like break us. And I think this is an example of an employer being like, you're a consultant. I feel like I don't have enough control over you. So let me find new ways. And to accept the assignment, you have to like click the I accept all the terms and conditions. And that's, a you know. Yeah, which is fascinating because in a way it's sabotaging the work that they've paid for, right? Because if you can't give the best of yourself, if you're working under stress and anxiety and pressure, no one gives their best in that way. And it's also for me, it was an interesting, tactically and a transactional level, the way I've responded to this is now I just do deliverable-based contracts whenever I use that particular consulting kind of platform. Yeah. And that's a great transactional, easy solution for me, but it doesn't solve the bigger problem. And I think that's also one of the things we're talking about is that while we can find band-aid solutions for some of these things, there's a broader, bigger paradigm question. And the other thing, though, that really kind of just keeps getting to me is how much technology and these power structures and things have also like almost rewired our brains. Like I had to click on that Facebook notification. My entire body was like, must click. And one piece of technology was like telling me must click. And the other piece of technology was being like, must not click. And it was again, one of those like, my brain might've imploded. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I can tell you for sure that I I over rely on technology. And it's the first thing that I look at when I wake up in the morning. But you're right, it has really rewired my brain. You know, I think it's obvious for most people that our focus is not what it was before, you know, we had the ability to check information at any moment. If a question comes up in my head that's totally random, I don't have to go to Nicecopedia, I can go straight to the internet, right? And so it builds one, an addiction, and two, our attention span decreases dramatically. Very much like you were saying, you know, the the ding, you know. Yeah. I remember like I react to it immediately. It's like a bell that that, you know, prompts me to have an and that to me was very telling. 
And it's one of those things where, and there is a lot of research by cognitive scientists as well. Um, they're actually showing how our neural pathways and the way our brain stores information is changing because of technology and screens and all of that. And this thing is like, it really is making us want to do multiple things at the same time. It's cutting into our focus. It's making us be like, we must have multiple devices, multiple things happening. And the other reason that's fascinating to me is because it ties into our economic structure mm -hmm. of more, bigger, faster, more, more, more productivity. That's right. right. That's right. Um, and nothing in depth, like doing a lot of things quickly is better. And that that culture, that work culture really is, is yeah. fundamentally wrong. And I think it's probably one of the root issues that we have and why you know we are having this great resignation. I also think it desensitizes us to other people when we overuse it. You know, it, I do think that it makes us less empathetic. And all you have to do is read the comments on any social media platform, and it'll show you how dehumanizing we can be. Because we have this medium that somehow shields us from moral responsibility to others. Um, so it, it really is a big issue that has to be thought about and used responsibly. And that is, it's, again, uh, one of the things we're talking about is how outside of work life and work life are actually, those are not separated. No. And so the <laughs> way we are interacting on social media and on anonymous platforms and stuff does seep into our interactions with our coworkers. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, we that that is behavior that we adopt and that we apply to different areas of our lives. Yeah, and and the other thing you're saying is really important in that we are trying to do a million things at once. Um, it I think it also has made us very reactive, right? Instead of reflecting, we react. Yeah, because it's such an impulse, um, and, and that's certainly not a sustainable way to live. And I think it has, again, as you said, led to some of this great resignation, right? Yes. If you're constantly reacting, if there's multiple bells and dings going off and you're like, I have to respond to this email, but also the Slack message, but also this WhatsApp message, and everyone will be mad at me if I don't respond right away, yeah. that is a loss of control in our lives. That is a pace of unsustainability right. that why you and I and so many other people that we've seen are like, can't, we have to take a step back. And again, that leads to this like, paradigm shift that's coming right. and these are all ways that technology is dehumanizing our workspace and so as we make the argument that part of the solution part of how we move forward part of this like great reimagination of work is rehumanizing humanizing our workspaces that's exactly right it's also about humanizing the way we use technology in our workspaces a hundred percent yep you hit it on the head yeah um there was another really great quote that you shared with me that about that captures this really well, better than I can. <laughs> what, what, can you share it with me? Yeah, so I think it was uh, the Jeff Livingston, um, who's an author and a futurist, who commented that this is a great period of transition. The internet forced us to confront the worst aspects of our humanity. That's right. Whether we succumb or not to those character defects as a society remains to be seen. Mic drop. Yeah. That's it. That, that is really what we're saying. And, and, it, and it has to take effect in all areas of our lives. And it is, it's this moment again of like, it remains to be seen. We really do have this choice. Um, and that is the choice of the role of 
technology in our in our lives and in our work. That's right. And also about the power of our employers, whether it's how they are using technology to hold power over us, but also in all the other ways. Exactly. And how are we right-sizing power between employers and employees that we've talked about? It's about right-sizing the role of work in, in our totality lives. in our lives, right? Yes, absolutely. This is coming back to what we talked about, about like how much we hate the phrase work-life balance. It's so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think this is also our moment of greatest optimism that you and I have talked about is that we do believe all of these things are possible. I, I feel excitement. And I think, you know, when you and I first started talking about this, it was like almost a sense of urgency because we knew firsthand um, why this was happening. Yeah. yeah. And it is. And the, one of the ways that I think I remain so optimistic is, is thinking about being able to change whole systems and that paradigm shift, right? That's so right. we're not putting band-aids on it. And I will name one of the fears that I have when I when I talk about some of these issues is we live in an individualistic society. Yes. And I worry that sometimes some of these things about, especially about employee power and us putting up boundaries and deciding for ourselves like what are important can push us into that hyper-individualism Yes, that's right. And like everything else, these are all tools that can be used to also make things better. Yes. And the way that I think about it, at least, is the systems-level analysis where I say, if we want long-term, systemic, sustainable, transformative change, a paradigm shift, there is, there is individual-level work that we have to do, but it is also team-level, community-level work, organizational-level work, and societal level work. Yes. And that in order to get that sustainable change, we have to talk about change. We have to talk about the analysis at all these levels and the change at all of these levels. This paradigm shift has to be tectonic, which is why we need to have a perspective about how we need to address it at every level. Yeah. And just as a quick example of the analysis of when we use systems level, right? So one analysis, one way of thinking about it is that we'll and we'll, again, we'll be personal, like you and I were part of this great resignation. So we left our jobs because yes. jobs were causing us stress. So we left. Yes. We did the thing that was really good for us. That's right. <laughs> but that meant our teams were one person down yes. and our coworkers had to work more, which led to their burnout on, on them. And I bet you, you felt guilty about leaving your team behind, didn't you? Consistently. Yeah. Constantly. And it, it, it factored into your decision making, didn't it? Yeah. And, and then that burnout on the team level impacted the organizations, our yeah. organizations, other organizations that we're seeing, That's right. organizations having to make new policies, they can't keep up with recruitment, uh, and society we're seeing shortages, supply chain shortages, That's right. um, you know, like all sorts of things. And it would be easy to be like, well, you and I made selfish decisions and look, society's falling apart. But that's right. not the full story. Not at all. Not right. even not even close. Because the other way of doing the systems level analysis, and this is where it's not either or, it's and, 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 and. That's right. Is that society has pushed productivity, hyper productivity for so long with this greed is good mentality that that put pressure on our organizations and our companies to center profitability, to center productivity. It forced our companies to just really grind us into nothingness. Yes. It forced our teams into hyper-competitiveness where we were all constantly backstabbing each other, always kind of being like, well, well, Nydia got this. Why didn't I get this? Right. And that destroyed us at an individual level. And that's why we left. 
And it also destroyed it at a team level, yeah. right? It pitted us against our team, our, our, our coworkers and our teams. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. And so that's where the systems level analysis, I think, really helps us understand how everything we're seeing around us isn't just you know, because you and I had like a crisis and so we did thing, or it's not just a societal crisis. It's all the interplay between crises and decisions and burnout and this existential stuff, the use of technology, like all of this at all these different levels. Yeah, Um, that's right. Well, and I think, you know, the elephant in the room here is that we are a capitalist society. So we have essentially created this lifestyle for ourselves. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, people have, but as a society, right, we have created this expectation and lifestyle of running through life. And I think that what gets us excited also is the the potential to use systems level analysis to think about solutions. So systems level analysis to think about how do we understand what's happening, but systems level thinking to also design for a potential future. Yes. so we, in previous episodes, we talked about kind of compensation philosophy, right? So if the purpose of work is to live, to lead a dignified life, yes, and compensation helps us do that, right? At an individual level, it's you and I defining what dignified life is, right? What that requires us to do. That's right. At a team level, so you and I can go into work and be like, I need this much money to live a dignified life. Yes. But you and I also need to then go into work and be like, well, what Farah needs to live a dignified life is going to look different than what Nidia needs to live a dignified yeah, life. hundred percent. And I'm not going to backstab you and I'm not going to feel petty and jealous about that. And that's a team level decision and actions okay. that we need to make. That's going to also require our organizations to be like, yeah, we'll meet you here. We are going to stop emphasizing profitability and productivity over everything else. We're going to redo our policies. Um, and then I think the big thing, the controversial piece of it, is that we are also saying it requires a societal level shift in which, you know, we can't keep tying, for example, mm-hmm. we can't keep tying our health care to our employers. 100%. It's a human right. Yeah. Right. And so in order to break, to like reset the power between employers and employees to let us reimagine work it's going to take societal level changes in policies around things like healthcare. That's right. To move healthcare from something that is employer owned to something that is in the public good, is that's in right. the public sphere. And that, I think that's also part of the issue that's, it's, it, that it's societal, right? And that is that, um, you know, government's supposed to regulate and look for the ordinary American, look out for the ordinary American. But, but really the power is all with the private sector. Um, and, there are functions that are not appropriate for the private sector and, you know, healthcare and other human rights are it, you know, there's obviously a major conflict of interest there. Yeah. And that's part of this broader discussion also about the role of extractive economies yes. and our, the system of that the actual economies that we work in. And that's, again, that's the reason why we keep focusing on paradigm shift. Yes. Is that this is not something that you and I can fix just by ourselves. But it's also not something that if we fixed policy level, if you and I didn't start to also change our individual thinking, our individual piece, right? And that's the systems level again of like, that's right. We have to get all of this stuff. All of that change has to happen at each level for there to be actual paradigm shift, yeah. right? Systemic change. Let me ask you a really tricky question. Yeah. 
and I'm going to be a bit of a pessimist here. What if employers don't shift the power from profitability and um, business? Can we still achieve any of that without that change? So I, I think some of it, it's a good question. I think we're also arguing, again, this is all work that takes time. Yes. And so it's not... This is the like it, this is not us arguing that we have to sit in despair and not do anything. It's that we can we can start to do the individual unlearning work. Yes. We can start to do the care as teams. We can come up with better healthcare benefits as employers while we wait for the societal change. But also recognizing that like we can't get societal change level change until us as individuals and us as employers start to see the benefits of some of these big policy changes. Yes. And so all these things also work in tandem and it's not a two-year fix. This is again, a generational, it's a paradigm shift. It'll take a generation, yeah. but all of this change has to happen all at once. And it's in, like, there are steps to it. Mm. And each step takes us closer and closer to a potentially reimagined, exciting future. That's right. And and really that was the purpose of us, you know, putting this podcast together. We know that it's happening. The shift has begun. And what we're saying is before you start coming up with solutions, really step back and take the time to talk to employees and to really understand what the workforce needs in this moment because it's, because it has changed. So we're not offering solutions, but what we are saying is you need to have the conversation. And these are two important factors that have to be put on the balance as you're deciding what your workspace is going to look like in the future. Exactly. I love that. I couldn't have said it better because it is, there are a lot of band-aid solutions that don't get to the big questions. And at the same time, there are a lot of small solutions that actually do lead us to our broader goals. And what we, we're arguing partly is that when we center those big goals, when we really say, okay, what is, what is the role of work in our lives? Why do we work? Let's, let's keep that centered. Yes. Let's keep the center, let's center the power relationship between employers and employees. And let's keep checking in on that. Who has power? Who's holding power? How are we holding power? How do we shift power to employees? And we talk about centering human, humanizing our workspaces. Like, yes. are we taking care of each other and ourselves as humans? If we center those things, as we come up with solutions, even the short-term Band-Aid solutions, they will lead us to a positive future. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. This is exciting. And, and we thank you very much for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we're extremely passionate about it. And... Um, yeah, we hope to have you join us in the future for future conversations as we continue to explore these topics, dig a little bit more into the research and interview some other great folks who are working in these areas as well. That's right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.